Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 19, The Judgment of Paris. Last time we heard about the wedding of Peleus and Thetis, and how Eris threw in the apple of discord, which caused an argument between Athena, Hera and Aphrodite about who was the fairest. This argument has still not been resolved. Anyway, the marriage of Peleus and Thetis was a good one to begin with. The apple of discord did not cause the happy couple any problems, and they settled down to a peaceful and contented life. Before long, Thetis gave birth to a son. Now, do you remember the prophecy? The oracle had said the son of Thetis would be greater than his father. Thetis took this to heart, and set about making sure the prophecy would come true. Peleus and Thetis named their child Achilles. Every night Thetis took the baby into a room. Every morning she brought him out and got on with the day. Peleus began to get suspicious. What was his immortal wife doing with the boy? He decided to wait up one night and have a peek at what was going on. Poor Peleus probably wished he hadn't interfered. When he peeked inside the room and saw what he saw, it changed his life forever. He silently pushed the door open and peered inside. What he saw shocked him. Thetis was holding Achilles in the fire. The boy didn't seem to be in any pain, but Peleus could not stand by and watch. "'What are you doing?' he cried. "'Stop it now, you will kill our son in the flames!' Thetis turned to her and looked at her husband, her face a picture of anger. "'You stupid man,' she said. "'I have dipped the child in the river Styx. "'He is invulnerable to attack from any weapons. "'Only his ankle, which I had to hold on to as I dipped him, can be hurt. "'Every night I hold him here in the fire, "'and every day I anoint him with ambrosia. "'Before too long this would have made him immortal.' There was not too long to go. Now that you have interrupted me, the spell is broken. I can't make him immortal, and it is your fault. With that, the angry Nereid left her husband and son and returned to the sea. The marriage was over. Achilles spent his childhood with his father. His mother, though, as we will see, always watched over him. Thetis watched her son grow with immense pride. Although she wasn't with him, she constantly watched over him, making sure he was protected. There was a good reason for this. Thetis knew a great war would start in the next few years, and she knew that if Achilles went to fight, then he would die. She wanted to make sure she did everything she could to stop this happening. As Achilles got older, she became even more worried, until one day she couldn't bear it any more. She loved her son and wanted to save him from danger, so she took him away and sent him to the island of Skyros. She instructed the king, Lycomedes, to dress Achilles as a girl and hide him. Soon poor Achilles began to believe that he was indeed a girl. It wouldn't be long, though, before the secret was discovered. Meanwhile on Olympus, even after many years, there was still trouble. Despite the fact that quite a lot of time had passed since the wedding of Peleus and Thetis, the apple of discord was still doing its work. Eris smiled as she watched Athena, Hera and Aphrodite quarrel and argue and argue and quarrel. In the end, the arguments got too heated and Zeus had had enough. He decreed the disagreements must end, and he was going to get someone to judge who was the fairest, and so end the power of the apple. He was still planning to cause the war, and he hit upon an idea which would achieve both of his aims. He decreed that a mortal should judge between the three heavenly ladies. He decreed the mortal judge should be a shepherd who worked on Mount Ida, who went by the name of Paris. Zeus gathered the three fighting Olympian ladies together and told them of his decision. He instructed Hermes to take them to Mount Ida and introduce them to Paris.
The strong, handsome shepherd was very scared when four immortals approached him. He realised this was a pretty unusual event and was probably a bad thing. He thought and thought, but he couldn't think what it was he had done which might result in a punishment. He waited for one of them to speak. Little did he know that he had a reputation for being fair in judgment, and this was the reason the immortals had come. "'Paris,' said Hermes, "'your honesty and fairness are known throughout Olympos. "'It is because of this the great Zeus asks you to judge between these fine, lovely ladies. "'You must decide which of them is the fairest.' "'Paris couldn't believe his ears. "'He gazed over at three of the most powerful beings on Olympus. "'His jaw dropped, and he was speechless. "'He looked at Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite, one by one. "'Eventually he regained enough composure to speak.' I am just a mortal, he said. I cannot decide which of these three divine ladies is the fairest. Anyway, he continued, whichever two I decide are not the fairest will hate me forever. I am bound to be given some terrible punishment. So, thanks, but no thanks. Hermes laughed. They will abide by your decision, he said. You will not suffer because of it. And anyway, Zeus commands it. You've got no choice, so I suggest you just get on with it. Paris gulped and turned to the goddesses. He had no idea how he was going to make his choice. As he was pondering it, though, his thoughts were interrupted. One of the three spoke. Paris, said Hera, you must choose me. I will make you lord of all Asia. You will have power greater than you could ever imagine. I may even give you Greece as well. If you say that I am the fairest, you will be the most powerful man in the world. Paris gazed at the queen of the gods. Tall and elegant, with shining eyes, she stared back at him and smiled. Paris saw the beauty of power, and he liked it. He was about to speak, but before he could open his mouth, another voice was heard. Paris, said Athena, you don't need or want power. Choose me, and I will give you wisdom, more wisdom than any other man. All of the kings of the world will want to come to you for advice. With wisdom such as this, you could accomplish anything you want. Paris forgot all about power and being a king. Wisdom sounded like a much better idea. He dreamed of all the things he could do with such wisdom, and he liked it. He was about to speak, but before he could open his mouth, another voice was heard. The soft voice of Aphrodite spoke. Paris, she said, let's get real. Forget about power and wisdom. You are a handsome man, and you need a beautiful wife. Choose me, and I will give you the most beautiful woman in the world. If you say I am the fairest, which of course I am, I will make Helen of Sparta fall in love with you. Paris forgot all about power, and he forgot all about wisdom. He looked at all three, and spoke in a loud, definite voice. I choose Aphrodite. She is the fairest. The three goddesses turned away. Aphrodite giggled with pleasure and stroked the golden apple. Hera and Athena both swore revenge. They had promised to abide by the decision and they did. Their revenge would not be taken on Paris. No, it would be much worse than that. They would have their revenge on Troy itself. It was clear which side these two would be on when the war started. Back at home, Eris smiled her evil smile yet again. She knew that bad things were going to happen. The apple of discord had done its work. Now Paris, of course, was a simple shepherd, and he had no way of travelling all the way to Sparta. He would need money and transport, and he had neither. For quite a few years he forgot about his prize, and anyway, he was married to a nymph called Oinone, and they had a child. A long time later, things happened that changed Paris's life.
Down in Troy, it was time for some games, and King Priam wanted a magnificent bull to give as a prize. He sent his servants out into the kingdom to find the perfect specimen. Of course, they found it in the herd belonging to a man called Agilaus. This herd was looked after by a strong, handsome shepherd called Paris. Priam ordered that the bull be brought to him. Paris was quite annoyed, but he realised he had no choice but to give the bull to the servants. He thought about how he could get it back, and an idea popped into his head. He could enter the games and try and win it back, fair and square. Paris entered the games. First he competed in the boxing competitions, which he won. Then he entered the running race, and he won that too. The sons of Priam were furious that this shepherd was winning all the trophies, and they challenged Paris to another race. He accepted, and he won again. This was too much for the princes of Troy, and one of them, Dephobos, drew his sword and attacked Paris. The shepherd ran away to the altar of Zeus, but Dephobos followed and was about to kill him, when Agelaus threw himself between them. Stop! he cried. This young man is no shepherd. He is the lost son of King Priam, brother of Hector, Dephobos, and the other princes of Troy. I rescued him from the mountain after he had been cared for by a bear. Everyone stopped and looked around. This was momentous news. Soon there was wild cheering. Everyone was joyful. Everyone, that is, except one of the daughters of Priam. Cassandra stepped forward and begged the people to listen to her. Please, father, please, people of Troy, do not take Paris in and make him part of the royal family. This will bring disaster on our great city. Of course, Cassandra was right, but the curse worked. Nobody believed her. Poor Cassandra slunk away, knowing they were wrong, that she was right, and she couldn't do anything about it. Paris was welcomed into the family. There was rejoicing, feasting, and more games. Troy was doomed. Paris, of course, was delighted. He suddenly had wealth and riches beyond his wildest dreams. He had a load of brothers and sisters. He had a magnificent new home. Paris forgot all about poor Oinone and his son back on Mount Ida. No, Paris had other things on his mind. He began to make plans to get what he really wanted. He craftily began to talk about a trip to Sparta, pretending he was going to visit Menelaus. Really, of course, he was after Helen. Helen and Menelaus had lived happily for a number of years. They had a daughter called Hermione and a small son. Helen was content. Surely Paris would not be able to persuade her to come to Troy with him. Aphrodite's magic would definitely be needed. It was clear that Zeus had it all planned, because everything fell into place for Paris. Just as he was planning a trip to Sparta, Menelaus turned up in Troy. He had been told to offer sacrifices in Troy to get rid of a plague which was ravaging his kingdom. Paris entertained the Spartan king while he was in Troy, and in return was invited to come and stay with Menelaus and Helen. Paris, of course, accepted immediately. Soon after Menelaus left Troy, Paris was on his way to Sparta. Aphrodite sensed favourable winds, and Paris, along with his friend Aeneas, arrived in Sparta after a short time. He was greeted warmly by Menelaus. He was also greeted more warmly by Menelaus's wife. As soon as Paris saw Helen, he began giving thanks to Aphrodite. She was indeed the most beautiful woman in the world, much more beautiful than any woman he had ever seen. Paris chuckled to himself, knowing the magic of the goddess of love would soon be at work, and that Helen would soon be on her way back to Troy with him.
Poor old Menelaus had no idea all this was going on. He didn't notice that Paris was paying much more attention to his wife than he was to him. He didn't notice the way Paris looked at Helen, and he didn't notice Aphrodite's magic start to work on his wife. For nine days the King of Sparta entertained his guest, and they all had a great time. On the tenth day, though, everything changed. Menelaos was called away to Crete to attend the funeral of his grandfather, who had died suddenly. Menelaos left for Crete, Aphrodite weaved her spell on Helen, and that night Paris whisked the Queen of Sparta away and took her back to Troy. As we have said before, everyone blames poor Helen for this terrible Trojan War, but it was not her fault. Eris threw the apple of discord into the wedding feast, so it was certainly her fault. Aphrodite had told Paris he could have Helen as his wife if he awarded her the apple, so it was certainly her fault too. Paris decided to have Helen instead of power or wisdom, so it was certainly his fault. It was not Helen's fault. Hera sent storms to stop Paris reaching Troy, but they only delayed him. Before too long the ships arrived at the city. Paris and Helen entered Troy. There was feasting and rejoicing. Paris and Helen were married, even though she was still married to Menelaos. Paris was delighted. Priam was delighted. The people of Troy were delighted. There was one person, of course, who was not delighted, and wasted no time telling everyone why. Helen would bring doom to Troy. The city would be destroyed if she were allowed to stay. Nobody took any notice, of course. Nobody ever believed poor Cassandra. Once again she was right, and once again she couldn't get anyone to take her seriously. Cassandra tore at her hair and wailed. Menelaos returned to Sparta after his granddad's funeral, and found out what had happened. He was, of course, hopping mad and very upset. He immediately went to see his big brother, and demanded they raise an army and crush the treacherous Trojans. Agamemnon, though, was not keyed on having a war. The king of Mycenae was cautious, and some saw him as a bit of a coward. He was probably right, though, not to rush into war. Paris the wretch has run off with my wife, said Menelaos. I'm not hanging around waiting. It's time to go and get her back. Remember the oaths that the kings of Greece made. All of those who did not win Helen vowed to help the one who did if there was a problem. This is a problem. Hold on a minute, little brother, said Agamemnon carefully. Maybe it's all been a bit of a misunderstanding. I'll tell you what, I'll send envoys to Troy to have a word with King Priam. They will return with Helen and no blood has to be shed. Menelaos reluctantly agreed and Agamemnon sent the envoys. They arrived at Troy before Paris and Helen and Priam told them to get lost. When they returned, even the cautious Agamemnon realised they could not let this go. It was time to rescue Helen. It was time to make the kings of Greece live up to their vows. It was time for war. The call was sent out to the heroes of Greece to fight the coming war on Troy. Agamemnon was to be the leader, and he contributed a hundred ships and many men, but many more would be needed. The heroes were asked to meet at the port of Aulis. First, Menelaos fetched old Nestor, the Argonaut, from Pylos. He was old, but he was wise, and he would be needed. Next, they sent Palamedes, a friend of Agamemnon, to fetch Odysseus, king of Ithaca. It was Odysseus who had suggested the oath in the first place, so clearly he would want to come on the mission. When Palamedes arrived on Ithaca, though, he received troubling news. Odysseus would not be coming on the trip at all, because apparently he had gone mad. Palamedes went to see Odysseus and found him ploughing the sand and sowing salt. Clearly, he was indeed 
totally crackers. Palamedes, though, knew how clever Odysseus was and was suspicious. He picked up Telemachus, Odysseus's little baby son, and put him a few paces in front of mad Odysseus's plough. The king saw his little boy and immediately stopped, so he didn't run him over with the plough. Palamedes smiled. Clearly Odysseus was not mad, after all. Odysseus admitted he'd been pretending. He didn't really want to leave his lovely island kingdom. He didn't want to leave his wife Penelope or their young son. He especially didn't want to go and fight the Trojans, because he had been given a prophecy. If he went to fight, he would not return for twenty years. He knew now, though, he had no choice. Off he went to join the gathering of the heroes. Many more came. There was the great Ajax, son of Telamon. He was a man of immense strength and was the second best warrior in all Greece. There was little Ajax, a great spear-thrower and a fast runner. The two Ajaxes often fought together. There was Diomedes, son of Tydeus and a king of Argos. He brought eighty ships. There was Philoctetes, who had been given the bow and arrow and poison which belonged to Heracles. One was missing, though. The great Ajax was only the second greatest warrior in all of Greece. Everyone had heard of the greatest, but nobody knew where he was. That is because his mother, Thetis, knew that if he fought in the war, then he would die. Achilles, the greatest warrior in Greece, was still only fifteen, and was currently pretending to be a girl at the court of King Lycomedes of Skyros. Agamemnon had also been given a prophecy. Troy could not be taken unless Achilles was part of the force. Odysseus, clever old Odysseus, was sent to find him. He came up with a plan and set off for Skyros, taking Diomedes with him. Odysseus and Diomedes arrived in Skyros dressed as merchants. Odysseus took King Lycomedes aside and gave him a note from Agamemnon, demanding that Achilles be given to them. The king pretended to be puzzled. He's not here, he answered. Have a good look round, you won't find him. Odysseus and Diomedes did just that, and all they found were girls. Princess Dodamia and her friends. Odysseus knew one of these girls must be Achilles. He sent Diomedes out and put down some beautiful jewellery in front of the girls, telling them that these were gifts. Take whichever you like, he said. The girls tried on the brooches and necklaces and began to choose. All that is, except one. Among the jewellery was a fine sword. One of the girls picked up the sword and began playing with it. Suddenly there was a great cry from Diomedes outside and a clash of weapons. The girls screamed, all except the one with the sword, who flung off her robe and charged out to do battle. Achilles was unmasked. Odysseus laughed. Come on, he said. Thetis can't keep you here secretly any longer. It is time to go and fight. Achilles was delighted. He set off and brought with him many of the local men, called the Myrmidons, as fighters. He also brought with him his cousin and best friend, a man called Patroclus. He left behind Didamia, who he had secretly married, and their son. This very young boy was called Neoptolemus. We will meet him again later in our tale. Finally everyone was ready at Aulis. Agamemnon stood in command of a massive army and a huge navy. It is said there were twenty-nine different armies with forty-four kings as their leaders. There were over one hundred thousand men ready to sail in one thousand one hundred and eighty-six ships. This is why Helen of Sparta was known as the face that launched a thousand ships. A great sacrifice was offered to the immortals. 
As the chiefs gathered around the altar for the sacrifice, a blue serpent with red markings shot out from under the stone. It climbed up to the highest branch of a tall tree. On the branch was a nest of sparrows, and the serpent wolfed down the eight baby sparrows, and then ate the mother sparrow too. The snake then turned to stone. "'It is an omen,' cried the seer, a man called Calcas. "'The serpent ate nine sparrows. "'It means we will battle the Trojans for nine years "'and be unable to take the city. "'In the tenth year, though, we will win.' "'The great fleet set sail. "'They would soon be under the walls of Troy. "'Agamemnon gazed out over the sea and looked forward to victory. "'Would he really have to wait nine long years?' "'Next week,' We will hear what happened during those long nine years. Until then, have a great week and I'll speak to you next time.